It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Knock, 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 knock,
K-I-R-P Radio! When you're looking for real truth, real talk radio, make sure you log on to KIRPRadioshow.com. Sunday nights live, 8 p.m. with your host. Rocco P., good evening. Thank you for listening to the, the KRP Radio Show. I thank Pudgy Miller for the opportunity to host this show the last Sunday of every month. This is Rocco P., last Sundays with Rocco P., uh, tonight, I do want to talk about the upcoming presidential election, but I want to get there from a different angle. I want to get there from a different perspective to lay a groundwork about it. Liberty activism, a lot of people talk about the Tea Party. Uh, people throw around the phrase libertarian as political philosophy apart from the Libertarian Party. Uh, there's a lot of, People talk about the Patriot Movement. There's a lot of different forces, people that are involved in the political process. I want to talk, give some background tonight about uh, what some of those terms mean and where we're at now heading into this uh, election. The number to call in is 619-638-8559, The uh, Many people say the modern, you know, the modern patriot movement, the modern liberty movement really started uh, in the in the 60s, in the 1960s, and they say that there obviously had always been you know different forces involved in uh, in American politics. So I you know, I won't go into the whole the whole history of the nation and you know we, I've talked in the past about the Civil War, about the so-called Progressive Era, which is really collectivist era that involved both parties. Theodore Roosevelt, Republican, was a progressive. Uh, when he didn't get the Republican nomination, when he wanted to re-enter uh, the Republican race, and he lost, he started, he ran on the Progressive Party ticket. Woodrow Wilson, Democrat, was a Republican. There was a lot of changes that occurred in the early, 20, early 20th century. Uh, that's when they started to redefine uh, government schools, really government being involved in education. They really adopted a Marxist concept of uh, so-called free public education, which is a contradiction in terms. Uh, it's not free. <laughs> in one sense, it's really not public. It's uh, it's public to the extent that the government controls it, and then it's paid for by confiscatory taxation. But a lot happened then. Uh, that's when women got the right to vote. Uh, that interjected women broadly, more broadly into the society. Uh, there was the IRS. IRS was instituted then, the Internal Revenue Service. Initially, the IRS was set up as a tax on corporations, and now it has degenerated. It was redefined as a tax on individual income, which was wrong. Uh, there we got the Federal Reserve, which is no more federal than Federal Express. They had passed legislation to give... Uh, the power over the United States, the currency of the United States, and credit to a private banking cartel. Uh, when I was in college, I learned about the Federal Reserve, but they never told me it was a privately owned banking cartel. <laughs> now many people know that, and uh, there's a move, outright move to audit the Fed en route to ending the private Federal Reserve. But I digress a bit. Uh, getting here now, 2015, how, how do we really get the current the current number of people, different groups, 
that identify, again, as Tea Party, uh, people identify as patriots, as libertarians, as political philosophy. The Libertarian Party, in my opinion, is largely co-opted, as is the case, the two major parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. But libertarianism is really a, a political philosophy that rests upon non-aggression principle. In other words, it's the idea that uh, you should not be able to exert force against another individual unless it's really defensive. So when the government exerts force, it should only be to protect someone else's property, you know, life or limb. And obviously that's not the case. We see police largely involved in revenue generation, things like that. Uh, so we get back again how uh, how really how the modern patriot movement start? How did it really start? Again, there's there's been different movements, different uh, different people, uh, different philosophies in in the U.S. But I want to focus really on the modern the modern expression of the patriot movement. Uh, liberty movement in the United States. And it largely did start in the 60s. There was a book that was written called Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time that was written by Carol Quigley. Carol was a man's name. I don't know uh, if his parents were cruel that they called him Carol, but he was a man. And he was Ivy League trained. I believe he went to Harvard and then he taught well over 20 years at Georgetown University. Georgetown University is a Jesuit school, and it's known for their international relations department. One of the people that Carol Quigley had mentored was Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton would uh, publicly uh, thank Carol Quigley for the influence he had on his life as a mentor. But uh, Quigley's magnus open, open uh, his, his, his major work was this book, Tragedy and Hope, History of the World in Our Time. He had written a number of books. You can get Tragedy and Hope, I believe, still online. If you do an Internet search, I would use startpage.com or duckduckgo.com, not the other guy. But you could probably get Tragedy and Hope still as a PDF. And there's a number of other you know, long books that Quigley wrote about the Anglo-American empire that are out there. Many of them are free as PDFs. And when this book came out in 1966, initially it was supposed to only be circulated among the intelligentsia, among a small number of people, I believe, it was supposed to be circulated among the Council on Foreign Relations. Council on Foreign Relations uh, is really comprises a part of the shadow government in the United States, in my opinion. When you look at post-World War II, almost every Secretary of State has been a member of the Council on Foreign Relations a number of presidents have, uh, I, I didn't pull up a video tonight, but we could even see Hillary Clinton thanking the Council of Foreign Relations when she was Secretary of State. She thanked them to head an office in D.C. so they could tell her what to do, and she wasn't joking. So, and also Dick Cheney, okay, it's, not a, it's not a Democratic thing, it's both parties. Dick Cheney was one of the directors of the Council of Foreign Relations years ago. So, so this book, Tragedy and Hope, was written to really a select group of people, but then word had gotten out and started to get circulated. And some of the things that Quigley, Quigley talked about a number of things in the book. Uh, he talked about the fact that there was a well-established plan, uh, well-established plans to set up world government, global government. He was, he was very clear about that and 
he spoke about this in detail and said he also had access to certain records. And Quigley was interesting. As an academic, he said openly he wasn't opposed to those goals. He really wasn't opposed to the movement to push towards world government, but he thought that people should know about it. <laughs> uh, you look at something like the United Nations. The United Nations was started you know, after uh, World War II by the Rockefellers. They had donated that land, that you know, prime land in in uh, Midtown Manhattan. And in the United Nations you know, stated goals to really eliminate national sovereignty. Okay, that's their stated goal. So that doesn't mean, no, there's, there's not going to be people with blue helmets taking over the United States. But the United Nations policy is implemented at the local, state, and federal level. I've talked before about Agenda 21. You could do you could do an Internet search on Agenda 21 to see how our property rights are just being eviscerated time and time again. It's not – the stories will come out like when, uh, when, they, uh, when they find children or arrest them for a lemonade stand – when those stories come out, it appears absurd, but it's all part of the plan. This is why, how one of one of the ways you see we don't have control over prior properties over zoning, over zoning. If you want to make an addition to your house, you need permission to do that, because they have to keep you safe from yourself. The state has a vested interest in knowing how many that you have a certain number of outlets, and they might be ground floor protected, things like that. So. This the program is well advanced, and I don't want to go in, into detail tonight about how advanced that program is for global government. Uh, suffice it to say, no political party, either Democrats or Republicans, will ever get rid of the United Nations. The last time I researched, that the United States spends about 25% of their budget on the United Nations, whose state goal is to eliminate national sovereignty, eliminate all national sovereignty, uh, you know, of all countries. And we see that, we see how it's being implemented through regional government, and then the goal after regional governments are established is to establish a global government. The model is the European Union. The European Union began as the European Economic Community. And there was some talk about political union uh, among the European Union, but it was largely sold to the people of Europe as a common market. In other words, it was sold to the people of Europe as a, as a means whereby everyone would be better. The people of Europe would do better if you eliminated uh, all barriers of trade between the member nations of the European Union and then erected a common barrier of trade to nations outside the European Union. And that was appealing. I mean, that was appealing to the people in Europe, you know, Spain, uh, Italy, uh, the UK, France. It was very appealing to them to, for them to do that. The goal, though, was always political union, and they've done that through the economics. You might not know that, you know, except for you know the pound sterling in the United Kingdom, yeah, there's no independent currency uh, in Germany. There's no Deutsche Mark anymore. There's no there's no francs in France. There's no lira in Italy. They're all using the euro, they're using a common currency standard. So that begs the question, if you have a group of nations that are all using the same currency, are, are those nations that have already given up the sovereignty of their currency, are they, are, are they politically sovereign anymore? Different studies have shown that in Brussels, the European Union, the European Parliament will control about 80% of the laws that govern Great Britain.
So people that aren't even Brits then, except for the few members of the Brits that are in the EU, they're, they're controlling, they're controlling that country. So that that is that is the plan. You, you establish regional government, uh, regional government governing bodies like the European Union en route to global government. That's why, for example, it doesn't matter whether we have George W. Bush in the White House or Barack Hussein Obama, also known as Barry Satoro, the border with Mexico remains open. And that's why we see people like Jeb Bush and Paul Ryan advocating and Marco Rubio advocating for amnesty, Republicans, not just Democrats, not just Democrats, because they're on board with the same plan. Again, the the goal is a North American Union en route to global government. So in order to get that North American Union, you really have to break the back of the United States. And one of the ways you do that is you erase the border with Mexico. You flood the United States with illegal immigrants. And uh, m- many people are uh, people look at Donald Trump. And uh, in my opinion, I think I think Trump is controlled. But part of the reason Trump is so uh, incredibly popular is because number one, he openly ridicules political correctness, and that's very that's extremely popular. That resonates with a lot of people. And he openly talks about securing our borders, uh, taking specific actions, unlike really virtually everyone else who is running for president. Uh, no one, no one really. I haven't seen any specifics unless I've, I've missed it. And certainly those who are in, uh, who are already in the Senate now, talking about Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, and uh, the the open so- socialist Bernie Sanders, none of them to the best of my knowledge, uh, have proposed any legislation to just at least even enforce existing laws to protect the border. It's just, it's not it's non-existent. So I go back to Quigley, uh, the influence of that book in 1966, A Tragedy, Tragedy and Hope, History of the World in Our Time. Quigley spoke about the plans that are well underway to establish a global government and how the elite were doing that. And he openly spoke about the fraud of the two-party system in the United States, two-party system, how how the two-party system was fraudulent. And this is this is a quote from uh, page 1247 to 1248. It overlaps. I'm not going to read that much. But he said, quote, the argument that the two parties, meaning Democrats and Republicans, the argument that the two parties should represent opposed ideals and policies one perhaps of the right and the other of the left is a foolish idea, acceptable only to the doctrinaire and academic thinkers. Instead, the two parties should be almost identical so that the American people can, quote, throw the rascals out, end quote, at any election without leading to any profound or extreme shifts in policy, end quote. Carol Quigley, Georgetown University, Tragedy and Hope, History of the World in Our Time. When, when that, when this book which was, you know, it was a huge book. When this got out, that really started the modern patriot movement. That's when people started to realize there was a lot of people uh, that were anti-communist, for example. Uh, a man named Cleon Skousen had written a book called The Naked, uh, 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 the Naked Communist. And then when Quigley's book came out, he wrote, a re- he wrote a review of Quigley's book and called it The Naked Capitalist. Then people started to see it was it was controlled. In other words, the when you understand that post World War Two, uh, 
even going even going to the beginning of World War II, the financial powers of Western Europe, really, to a large degree, the UK and the United States, they bankrolled Hitler. And even earlier than that, they bankrolled they were they were intimately involved with Bolshevik Revolution. This is this is documented. Quigley talked about that uh to some degree. It's in other books also. So when you understand the dynamic of what happened then it makes sense that people people don't a lot of people don't vote. Okay, a lot of people don't know that. We have the highest turnout for a presidential election that's normally maybe fifty percent and it's less from people uh during uh years when you don't have a presidential election. It should actually be more because we have a greater chance of changing the system at the state, local and county levels than we do. But that's part of the way that they manipulate the US public. But like half people pretty much don't vote. And uh you know, those numbers are very a little bit a lot of people don't vote because they know the system is rigged. That's why for example they have this commission to set up the debates for the president. So you finally get you go through who's been pre-selected for the Republican nominee and the Democratic nominee, and they have these debates. And that this commission sets up the debates, and people say, well, you know, why why do they cut out other people that are running outside the two parties? And again, uh, ballot access is hard, especially in a state like North Carolina. There's only one other party that's recognized. That's the Libertarians. Constitutional party isn't even recognized here. But there's other there's other small parties. But you think, okay, if you if you're a Republican at the highest level, you're part of the RNC, and you really thought that that what you represented, what you were uh, you were telling the American people was was valid, you wouldn't be concerned or afraid or intimidated by people that are from other parties. You let them in. Same thing with Democrats. You really thought that uh, your ideals, your policies, your positions were beneficial to the American public, why would you exclude people from other parties? But the people that run the commission are basically Democrats and Republicans, normally ex-members of the Republican National Committee and Democratic National Committee. So the reason they limit the debates is it creates the illusion of choice. And that's really everything to a large degree between the two parties. Now that's not to say, okay, there's there are obviously are honest Democrats and honest Republicans, but to advance in the party, particularly when talking about the president, they're, they're going to they have a system that's controlled. That's they're just not going to let dissent. They're not going to let they're not going to let certain views be represented. But as far as being outside the party, it's very easy, and people are starting to catch on to this that if you limit the debate to the Democratic nominee and the Republican nominee, and obviously the media the media cooperates in the fraud, then you control what's discussed. So then you could really control, by, by controlling the questions, you, you, you then control the outcome. In other words, if you have, two, you have two people up there, you have a Democrat and a Republican, and uh, immigration would be a great example, and they'll give you, they'll create the illusion. Again, everything is creating the illusion of choice. Everything is creating the illusion of choice, and the Democrat, uh, the Democrat would say, "Okay, well, uh, I believe we should have, we should let everyone who's in the United States stay, and then, uh, and then have a program to, you know, to let to let other people 
to let all the people come in, so many per year, but everyone who's here should automatically be granted citizenship. Then the uh, Republican get up, and, and the Republican will try and sound more conservative and will say, no, I think everyone who's here, they can earn citizenship, but uh, they'd have to get a temporary visa first and then fill out some paperwork and then five years. But the Republican view is kind of like George Bush's view, and uh, that was a Lindsey Graham uh Lindsey Graham, John McCain, Ted Kennedy plan, the Z visa, they basically would say anyone who was here, they'd have all the rights to citizenship without becoming a citizen. They'd never have to leave. So they they would create they create the illusion there's a difference. And you see this with a lot of the some of the Tea Party groups that uh that just aren't that bright or that are controlled want to make it sound as if the Democrats are the only people pushing amnesty. That's never been the case. Again, you go back to George W. Bush. He tried to do it, and that was really stopped by a coalition led by uh, Republican Senator Jeff Sessions. So it was Republican Senator that stopped it, but it was a Republican uh, president wanted to get it. The people that are pushing amnesty, incidentally, know that time's on their side. Time's on their side. And what do I mean by that? They know that as the illegals are in the country, and no one knows the number, they've been saying it's $12 million for the last I don't know, 15 years, tried easily 30 million. But they know because the law is manipulated, they know because anchor babies, if illegals come over here, and then then when they have children, the children are legal citizens. They shouldn't be, but they are. And certain states like Texas are attempting to, to change that. But the uh, the children then become legal citizens, and then they can petition when they get older to bring other people here. So they know they know time's on their side, but they still want to change the law. They still want to get it all done. They still want to make what's now illegal, legal. Uh, again, it goes back to the North American Union. It goes back to flooding the country with the illegals. If a country surrenders its border, then borders, then you really don't have any national sovereignty. Certain, certain libertarians, really anarchists, would argue that the border is imaginary, and uh, it's really sad when you talk to some of those people because it's like talking to a theoretical socialist. It's like you, you believe the system whereby, if you're a socialist, that uh, the government's going to control the means. You're going to get rid of private property, pretty much. The government's going to control all the means, production, transportation, distribution, and that everyone's going to be happy. And uh, no one's ever been happy when a government does that. It uh, It's totalitarian. It's horrifically bad. It destroys it destroys the standard of living because when people don't have private property, then there's no incentive for them to produce any wealth. And it, it's like with certain anarchists, yeah, they want to say, well, yeah, it's, the, the border's imaginary. It's like, it is? Well, then your citizenship means nothing. And you know, the border's not imaginary, I mean, especially between Mexico and Guatemala because if you jump the Guatemalan border and get caught in Mexico, I mean... Uh, if you're in the process of doing that, you know you get shot. And if they catch you in the country, then uh, <laughs> then then uh, you go to prison. Period. So Mexico takes uh, Mexico takes their borders very very seriously. <laughs> uh, in any case, understanding that quickly is very important because that's really that's the beginning that's the beginning of the modern patriot movement. When Carol Quigley wrote that book. And then people start to understand that we're involved. Uh, that hey, it's not just it's not just uh, the two parties. 
it's, it's, it's bigger than that. It really is. Uh, it really is rigged. It really is rigged. That was really the beginning, to a large degree, of the uh, of the uh, the modern patriot movement. That that was it. So there's different there's disparate groups, but that's when people start to realize that after Quigley's book, then they start to realize there's there's a bigger reality here, and uh, you can't just blame the other party. You can't you can't just blame uh, the so-called communist. Uh, because again, you had you had American financial interests. You had you had people in the states. You had people in the UK that were uh, that were that were advocating uh, that were advocating that. Uh, in other words, you had people again, the US, the US, certain banks, certain financial interests in the US and the UK. Once again, bankrolled Hitler. Uh, they helped bankrolled Hitler. They helped they helped the Bolshevik Revolution take place in the Soviet Union, which formed the Soviet Union. So. When people found this out, then they understood. Okay, well, we have to we have to engage in the political system in such a way, so that we could overcome we can overcome uh, what's really rigged at the top between the two parties. To quote again, to quote again from Quigley, uh, there does exist and has existed for a generation an international Anglophile network which operates to some extent in the way the radical right believes communists are. In fact. This network, which we may identify as around table groups, has no aversion to cooperating with communists or any other groups since we frequently does so. I know of the operations of this network because I have studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it or to most of its aims and have for much of my life been close to it and many of its instruments. I have objected both in the past and recently to a few of its policies, but in general, my chief difference of opinion is that it wishes to remain unknown, and I believe its role in history is, is significant enough to be known. Carol Quigley, again, Tragedy and Hope, History of the World in Our Time. Then he also wrote, The powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalist fashion by the central banks of the world, acting in concert by secret agreements arrived at in frequent private meetings and conferences. The apex of uh, the apex of the system was the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks, which were themselves private corporations. The growth of financial capitalism made possible a centralization of world economic control and use of this power for direct for the direct benefit of financiers and the indirect injury of all the other economic groups. Quigley also wrote the Council on Foreign Relations is the, is the American branch of a society which originated in England and believes national boundaries should be obliterated and one world rule established. So when when this when this information got out, uh, people started to people started to be involved. Now you had other groups that knew that knew about these things, like the John Birch Society and all. But a lot of the people again who were anti-communist, you know, the uh, the illusion was removed then that that wasn't a threat. It was the globalists that were trying to erase the borders of the United States. That was that was the real uh, that was the real threat. 
and that uh, you know that philosophy, that impetus that's that was involved in both parties. I go back to the fact that you know why do we have barely most of the time barely half the people vote, and that's only in it's only that high in a presidential election year. A lot of people know, some of them know intuitively, some of them know just uh, pragmatically. Uh, the system's rigged. Nothing. There, there isn't the major changes. There's rhetoric between the two parties, but nothing changed. Okay. Yeah. Case in point. Case in point. Now. Most most in D.C. Most in in uh, the District of Columbia, which I refer to at times affectionately as, as the District of Criminals. A lot is theater. Again, it's designed to make people, particularly those who care to vote. Uh, to give people the illusion of choice. We see now these Benghazi hearings. Okay, It's taken, I don't know how long, to actually get Hillary Clinton, the former Secretary of State, before Congress. And let me tell you what's going to happen. Uh, nothing. Nothing's going to happen. We already know that Hillary Clinton is in violation of federal law. She set up illegally. She set up a private server, wasn't secure, and was sharing... Uh, we're sharing secrets on that. Okay, she initially, she, initially they said she had a server wiped, so, so she either was negligent and didn't, but the server wasn't wiped. So they know what those emails are, and as they look through them, they know there's, there's been classified information in that. Okay, if the system wasn't rigged, Hillary Clinton would have already been charged criminally, but it's not. Lois Lerner. Okay, the IRS had targeted certain Tea Party groups. It was undeniable. Now you go back in the day with Nixon. Nixon just just had an enemy's list where he was contemplating contemplating using the power of the federal government against certain political enemies, and that led to his demise. Now we know, undeniably, the IRS targeted Tea Party groups. They didn't give tax-exempt status to new Tea Party groups that were forming. Lois Lerner violated, was in violation of contempt of Congress. In other words, she was supposed to, she was told to appear before Congress refused to do so. She should have went to jail. Congress could have had her arrested. Goes back to Boehner. Same thing with Eric Holder. Eric Holder, a former attorney general under Barack Hussein Obama, known as Barry Satoro. We know for a fact there was, there was a program called Fast and Furious. And really part of that started under Bush. But it came to light when Obama was in power where the, uh, the federal government was putting weapons from the United States into the hands of the drug cartels in Mexico. And that was done intentionally to demonize the Second Amendment. That's what it, was, it was done to basically cause, cause uh, violence with firearms to then give, create some political movement to basically help, help the political movement, which is largely dead now to you know limit limit our natural rights to self defense with firearms. We know that happened under Eric Holder's Department of Justice. He was called before Congress he refused he refused to appear, answer certain questions. He should have been incarcerated. So they create this illusion of choice that now the the Republicans control both the House and the Senate and still nothing happens. Nothing happens, and that's that's a real that's one functional definition of tyranny when the law is applied inconsistently, particularly those in power when they don't live under the same rules as everyone else. Uh, they 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 do not, and uh, we the people we the people are the ones who lose all the time when that happens. But I say all that uh, to understand how some of these groups 
have started how the idea when people start to realize the two-party system was rigged, uh, what what was going on, and how they then start to attempt to change the political system. Going to go to a break now. Again, if anyone wants to call in, that number is 619-638-8559. When Martin Lawrence was in that chair, we talked about Blue Streak. I love it. He played a role in your life, I believe. How do you feel about him as a person, as an artist? Martin Lawrence is the guy that showed everybody you can make it from D.C. to Hollywood. And uh, I had a personal stake in his success. Every time he did something, it made me feel inspired and really good. And he was always real nice to me. He'd sit me down, what's going on with you, baby boy? What, what? Talk about comedy, whatever. And, uh, you know, when we did Blue Streak, we were promoting it, and Martin had a stroke. He almost died. And then after that, I saw him, and I was like, oh, my God, Martin, are you okay? And he said, I got the best sleep I ever got in my life. <laughs> That's how tough he is. So let me ask you this. What is happening in Hollywood that a guy that tough will be on the street waving a gun, screaming, they are trying to kill me? Yeah. What's going on? Why is Dave Chappelle going to Africa? Why does Mariah Carey make a $100 million deal and take clothes off on TRL? It, a weak person cannot get to sit here and talk to you. Ain't no weak people talking to you. So what is happening in Hollywood? Nobody knows. The worst thing to call somebody is crazy, is dismissive. I don't understand this person, so they're crazy. That's bullshit. These people are not crazy. They're strong people. Maybe the environment is a little sick. How many more innocent people? How many more? How many more? What has been the number one cause of unnatural death in history? Democide, or death by government, has killed 290 million people on record. Look it up. Go look it up. In the 20th century, government murdered four times as many people as were killed in all the international and domestic wars combined. USSR, 61,911,000 people killed. Hitler's Germany. Nearly 21 million people killed. Japan's imperialism, nearly 6 million people killed. Western colonization killed over 50 million people. Pol Pot's Cambodia, funded by the U.S. government, 2 million people killed. China's Communist Party, as many as 76 million people killed between 1949 and 1987. And the list goes on and on. Demand to know why the Department of Homeland Security bought more than 1.6 billion hollow point bullets. How many more people does government have to kill? Enough. Enough. Demand an end to citizen disarmament. As an American. As an American citizen. As a patriot. For your children. Enough of the people laying down and letting government kill them in mass after disarming them as they've done throughout history over and over again. Now is the time. It's time. It's time to realize that when the government takes your guns, people die. It's time to realize the biggest threat to you and your family is government. It's time to recognize 
Government is the greatest killer of all time. Demand they show you the word hunting in the Second Amendment. Demand our politicians uphold the Constitution and Bill of Rights as they swore to when they took office. It's time for our leaders to read the Constitution. It's time for our leaders to obey the Constitution. The Constitution. The Constitution. Because a well-regulated militia with 10-round magazines wouldn't last very long. So now you know the most dangerous thing to you and your family in the world is government. Because mass murderers agree, gun control works. I was talking about the modern patriot movement. I was talking about the two-party system essentially being a a hoax. Uh, Once again, not every Republican is fake, not every Democrat is fake. But if you want to advance in the party, if you want to get ahead, you have to toe the party line. And that brings me to Ron Paul. I had basically, I, I was uh, I was Republican. You know, I wasn't involved in the party, but you know, I voted Republican. And uh, after 2000, after 9-11, when I saw that George W. Bush never secured the borders, and I learned about what illegal immigration was doing to the country. For example, the federal government spends all this money particularly on law enforcement. Okay, and if you take if you take a literal interpretation of the constitution, there's not that many federal laws that would need law enforcement. It'd be very, very few. But, you know, we have this monstrosity. <laughs> the federal government today that exists is alien to the original intent of the Constitution. But we don't even know how many illegal aliens are in the United States completely. we don't know. They don't want us to know. We don't know how many illegal aliens rape U.S. citizens. We don't know how many illegal aliens murder U.S. citizens. Because the powers that be don't want us to know. It's the same thing with wars abroad. Uh, the Pentagon really doesn't have any need for any fiscal restraint, Okay, let's face it, unless it comes to veterans' benefits. Okay, when, Once you leave the service, then yeah, you, don't, you don't get treated too well. But as far as you know, fighting and putting money, spending money abroad, there's 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 no restraint. Let's face it. You may, you may remember the days back in, uh, uh, in the Iraq War. What uh, you had no bid contracts. Halliburton connected to Dick Cheney, HBR, and again, I mean KBR. Incredible amounts of money. And it's a pretty good deal when you get a no bid contract. You know you could submit a contract that will be paid, regardless of what it's for. But one of the things the U.S. military doesn't like to count, or is civilian casualties. Okay, to this day, we don't know, we don't really know what the civilian ca- ca- casualty count was in Iraq. A British, private British polling organization in the midst of the Iraq war estimated at the time was anywhere from 600,000 to 1.2 million. And that's on top of the fact that after the Iraq war started, 25% one every four Iraqis fled the country, became refugees. But it's, uh, they don't like to keep those numbers. But uh, after 2000, that happened. I mean, I was done. I was done voting for lesser 
of two evils, which I now call voting for the lesser of two traitors. And uh, 2004, in the presidential race, I voted protest vote, vote for Chuck Baldwin and the Constitution Party without any regrets. But I was done. I mean, I was done with the Republican Party. I had I had unaffiliated. So then uh, I heard about this gentleman named Ron Paul, and I started to listen to some of his speeches and uh, you know read some of his articles. And uh, it was like it was like Ron Paul was from another era. It, was, it wasn't like he was real. Uh, I heard him speak once live at Duke University. He had gone to Duke's med school, and uh, that that was that was kind of like the feel when when he was there. It's like the things the things he was saying. I mean, he's, he's not. You see, Ron Paul. He's not a physically impressive person, and he himself said many times, uh, it wasn't his popularity, wasn't the power of his personality, was the message that was popular, and I believe that was most definitely true. But you, you'd hear Ron Paul talk about uh, the illegal wars. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11, only Congress has the power to declare war. Hasn't been done since Romania as part of World War II because the reason that's in the Constitution is Congress would only involve the United States military in an actual war. And that's really, that's been that's been done away with. The way they've done it after World War II, the very dangerous precedent was started in the Korean War, that the U.S. got involved in the Korean War based upon a U.N. mandate. Very dangerous precedent. But there's, there's a lot of downsides to illegal wars. One is that there's no clear resolution, and that's been the case with every war post-World War II, Korea, what do you say? You say you have the 38th power, parallel. Was that clear? No. Uh, the, US, the United States didn't want to completely defeat North Korea, which should have been done. Uh, Vietnam, same thing. U.S. shouldn't have been involved. No clear resolution. Now, it's at the absurd level we have a war on terror. Because how could you declare war on ideology, or as Ron Paul would say, a tactic? It's impossible. War on terror is illegal, and it's unending. But Ron Paul, you know, Ron Paul enters the stage and runs for president in 2008. And uh, I re-entered the Republican Party purely, basically, to support Ron Paul. And many other people did. I was not alone. Ron Paul generated uh, incredible amounts of interest, uh, nothing like that I had seen in, in my lifetime. Of the crowds, thousands of people would show up at, at Ron Paul rallies all over the place, uh, he would he raised funds. <laughs> a part of it was started by true grassroots people. It was a grassroots support that came with the idea of a money bomb. Not a literal bomb, but a money bomb. Just a way to say, okay, to use that phrase as a way to say, you know, we're gonna have we're gonna raise funds on such and such a day for Ron Paul, let's see what we could do. And uh it it was a truly it was a grassroots fueled phenomenon. In other words, it really was driven by the grassroots as Ron Paul did say, as I mentioned, I mean, it was not the power of his personality. It was a message. Uh, you had a guy talking about illegal war. Uh, you had a guy talking about sound money. The fact that uh, since the private federal banking, uh, privately owned banking cartel took over the credit and currency in the United States, the dollar is now about, I think, worth 4% of what it was prior to the Federal Reserve. Ron Paul was one of the few politicians 
that talked about the inflation tax. The inflation tax. What's the inflation tax? If you have an investment, for example, and uh, you think over a period of 10 years, your investment went up uh, 8%, but during that 10-year period, inflation went up 10%, you lost 2%. Ron Paul was one of the few honest politicians that talked about the inflation tax. Uh, Ron Paul was really, I mean, he was he was superlative, and he struck a chord with me and millions of other people uh, because he was honest and because he talked about the rule of law. Uh, Ron Paul did not vote for the Patriot Act, and the reason his reason was very simple, uh, which I applaud. He was not going to vote for something he didn't have time to read. That simple. He had other people in Congress at the time, like Bob Barr, and Bob Barr got the Patriot Act, and uh, he did uh, he did vote for it. But Bob Barr's reasoning was he put in a sunset clause, so he said it wasn't going to be on autopilot. And even after that, he said, uh, I remember hearing in an interview, he said he even regretted that, that uh, there shouldn't have been a sunset clause. It just he should have voted against it. But I guess that was his perspective in hindsight. But the Patriot Act, among other things, that was part of the abomination of laws that were passed and things that were done in the United States after 9-11. Terror always gives a nation a power, just like war gives a nation of those in power the ability to do things they couldn't normally do. So terror, particularly the terror acts in 9-11, were traumatic. Uh, the U.S. Had, had not been attacked in such a dramatic fashion. And uh, the men behind the curtain, you know, the power brokers, wherever you want to call them, the elite, the New World Order, they knew by doing that, that would scare enough people to support really whatever pretty much the federal government wanted to do. And that was the case. The Patriot Act was written by John Yoo, uh, who worked for George W. Bush, thrown down before Congress, said it a couple times, and they were told to vote on it. <laughs> and most of the people did. The Patriot Act contains a provision that says any if, you, if you're guilty of a misdemeanor, that's defined as an act of terrorism. So what that does uh, is that when you pass other laws, then basically saying you're guilty of other things if you're a terrorist. Well, people don't realize to be a terrorist, you just have to, according to the Patriot Act, still, you just have to uh, commit a misdemeanor, and then uh, you're a terrorist. But Ron Paul, Ron Paul generated a tremendous amount of, of legitimate grassroots uh, enthusiasm. Like I said, I'd never seen in my lifetime. I never saw anything like it. And those that... You really had a basic understanding of the rule of law and the Constitution and natural rights. I mean, there were there's there's a good reason why you know, he could show up anywhere and you know, get thousands and thousands of people to turn out to hear him. Like I said, you know, when, when the things he said, and not so much now as then, uh, it's like he wasn't from this era. It was like he was from a, it was like he's he was transported in from a different time uh, because that's how alien. It sounded to hear a sitting member of Congress talk about constitutional limits of government, to talk about illegal war, to talk about sound money, <laughs> to talk about the police state, uh, what was happening. Uh, so, you know, Ron Paul runs in, in 2008. You know, he was, you know, he was largely uh, demonized and vilified by the public establishment. Runs again in 2012. Uh, 
the campaign was different. Uh, he had he had someone named Jesse Benton run his campaign. Jesse Benton was married to his granddaughter. Jesse Benton really hadn't been on board with the Liberty Movement, but he was a family member. Ron Paul shows him. Uh, Jesse Benton, after the Ron Paul campaign, uh, he had been involved in uh, before before 2012. Yes, he was involved with uh, getting Rand, Rand Paul elected as senator in Kentucky. After Ron Paul campaign in 2012, Jesse Benton then worked for Mitch McConnell. And, uh, you know, that, that really, that caused a lot of concern among, you know, liberty people, a lot of people that, like me, that were die that were uh, diehard Ron Paul supporters. Like, well, a lot of things were bizarre in that campaign. A lot of things were bizarre. Doug Weed in Tampa, Tampa is where they held the uh, the RNC meeting in 2012, and they banned Ron Paul. No one could even say Ron Paul's name at, at the national RNC meeting. Uh, and Doug Weed was interviewed by someone from We Are Change. This this uh, this interview is still on YouTube. You could change, you could search uh, Doug Weed, We Are Change, Doug Weed, uh, uh, Ron Paul, Mitt Romney. Ron Paul made a deal with Mitt Romney, and he admitted that going into the Michigan uh, the Michigan primary, he said he wanted to attack Romney, but a deal was cut. They said the Ron Paul people basically they cut a deal with Romney to leave him alone. So to me that that really left a bad taste in my mouth and more than a bad taste in my mouth it really that really raised a lot of questions as far as the integrity of the Ron Paul campaign because they continued to raise money after Michigan full well knowing that they had no intention of, of ever winning, and then it, then it collapsed in Texas months later. But it, a lot of people that were diehard Ron Paul supporters, they really don't want to, because uh, even though Ron Paul isn't, it's not it's not really a cult of personality. People still, and that's the way politics, modern politics work in the, in, in the TV age and the visual age. People still identify with people, and though. It wasn't completely the case with Ron Paul because there's a lot of people like me uh, that you know will not support Rand, but a lot of people really couldn't believe that uh, you know the Ron Paul campaign was compromised. And, you know, it was going to Doug Weed. Some people deny that what Doug Weed said was true. Uh, I've never seen any proof that it's not true, though. And again, if you look at the timeline, it is true. At one point, you know the. Uh, the Ron Paul campaign stopped uh, criticizing Willard, Willard Mitt Romney. So part of the urban legend, part of what Doug Weed said is that they had this information that would have uh, that would have uh, destroyed Ron Paul's legacy. That I don't believe. So uh, you can say I believe part of what uh, <laughs> Doug Weed said. I guess he was a presidential historian for Ron Paul. But I didn't believe that part because I think the Republican establishment had any information uh about Ron Paul, they could have uh, they could have defamed him. Uh, evidently, and again, no one's ever no no one's ever said exactly what it was. But I've heard an urban legend that was Ron Paul speaking before a big Confederate flag, and I just I just don't think that would have done anything. In any case, after the Ron Paul campaign in 2012, Doug Jesse Benton then went to work for Mitch McConnell, and that raised a lot of issues because here you hear you have Mitch McConnell. I mean, this is super. I mean, this is Republican establishment figure. I mean, you know, Senate Majority Leader, and it's really bizarre to think about. You have a very, you have one of the most powerful Republicans in the U.S. Senate, 
uh, of the establishment. Why would he want, really, and I, I say this word not with any derision, but just matter-of-factly, a punk like Jesse Benton? Why would he want a punk like Jesse Benton to be involved with his organization? And it's funny, you know, you, you probe you probe into this. I remember one person, I think the person that told me this was sincere because they were under, they were deceived. Uh, they were under a little political mind control, but they said, well, Mitch had to, he had to hire Jesse Benton because, uh, because uh, if if he didn't, then uh, Jesse would have worked to uh, run someone against Mitch in the primary. And yeah, I find that, yeah, that's beyond hilarious that people could actually believe that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, people again, you go back to how it works, people at all levels, but particularly at the national level, even if they don't know people like Ron Paul or Rand Paul, they get emotionally attached to him. And the politicians largely know this. And that's how they, that's another way that they manipulate the public. But Ron Paul, again, was different with him, was always a message. But uh, I believe his campaign was compromised. I don't know all the details, but certainly uh, something did happen when the campaign stopped attacking Willard Mitt Romney, and they continued raising money, acting as if they were in to win it, and they were not. So y- you have you have this happen with Jesse Benton. So he goes to work for McConnell, and then uh, at one point he resigns, and then Rand Paul rehires him. Rand Paul only got elected in 2010 based upon the merits of his father. I mean, that, I mean that's that's a fact. I mean, Rand Paul, to his credit, was a true outsider. The guy was an ophthalmologist. He was a medical doctor, uh, not an OBGYN like Ron Paul, but an ophthalmologist, and had no political experience. And there was tremendous excitement among you know liberty people in Kentucky. Yeah, you know, I've heard you report some people moved to Kentucky. They were that excited to help him get elected. So Rand Paul enters the stage, and again, he only gets elected because of his dad's name and reputation. That's it. I mean, that that is that that's just a simple observation about how Rand Paul got that got that Senate seat. So there's a huge amount of excitement, and expectation. Thinking, okay, well, you know, Ron Paul was never in the Senate. This is you know, a tremendous uh, advancement for liberty. Now, you know, we have foothold in the Senate. Uh, and you know, Rand Paul then you know, started to change. What happened during the election? Justin Ramondo of Antiwar.com had uh, he had basically talked about how how a lot of this had had unfolded with when Rand had gotten elected. Uh, he it may I don't know if it was before or after he won the primary. Immediately, a guy, uh, a Republican operative, Trig V. Olson, dispatched people. And uh, he started working with the establishment. So Rand continued to really morph. He continued to change. Uh, where, where the, I mean, at this point, in my opinion, I mean, he's an establishment figure through and through. Uh, that's not to say everything Rand has done is wrong, but I mean, he clearly has positioned himself to want to be part of the establishment. And I can't, you know, read his motives, uh, but that's just a fact. Rand Paul endorsed Mitch McConnell in the 11th hour when Tom Tillis in North Carolina. Tom Tillis uh, was running uh, a corrupt individual, speaker, speaker of the North Carolina House, and uh, he was the anointed one. 
you can make a good argument he only entered the North Carolina House with the goal in place to becoming U.S. Senator, that that deal was cut. But in any case, Tom Tillis is running. It took Tillis $10 million to beat two people that had no political experience, $10 million in the primary. He was going to lose to Kay Hagan, the incumbent Democrat. In the 11th hour, Rand Paul shows up, makes a personal appearance in Raleigh, has a private fundraiser. And to a very large degree, you could credit Tillis barely beating Kay Hagan, thanks to Rand Paul. Rand Paul endorsed Susan Collins in Maine. And it was funny, but Ben, ben Swan, uh, Ben Swan, you go to his site, he had documented at the time. Uh, Rand Paul was asked, well, you know, she supports, she support, she supports the NSA, and uh, she supports the NSA surveillance. He goes, well, I really didn't know. And, uh, yeah, that, that's a nice way of saying that's disingenuous, you know, a, a, a nice way of saying he was a liar. But, uh, you know, Rand Paul is queer, Clearly, you know, has squarely placed himself uh, into into the establishment. Uh, this is where this is where he wants to be. And if you're going to vote for lesser of two evils, you can say, you know, the lesser of two traitors. You can say, okay, you know, Rand Paul would be he'd be the best choice. Yeah, you know, he'd be the best choice hands down. But uh, yeah, I don't vote like that. I haven't voted like that for you know for a good number of years. So Rand Paul has done so much that has been contrary to his father, again, endorsing establishment figures. You go back to 2008, uh, Ron Paul squarely refused to endorse McCain. Uh, it took a while, but he eventually did, did endorse Chuck Baldwin of the Constitution Party. Uh, then 2012, he endorsed no one, I believe, but he refused to endorse Willard, Willard and Mitt Romney. That's part of the reason he was banned at the RNC meeting, and even uh, Rand, who spoke there, he couldn't say his dad's name. And that also says something, in my opinion, about Rand, that he agreed to speak under those conditions. But the whole thing is, is that the Rand Paul candidacy really illustrates what's wrong with the system. And that's that someone could come in, get elected, appearing to be one way, and then just completely, you know, just totally do do things that are different. When Rand Paul did his filibuster about about drones, it changed nothing, yet he claimed victory. changed absolutely nothing. Uh, and this is part of really, you know, the mind control. I think Rand, Rand has gotten increasingly desperate because I think in his mind he thought, uh, and I think most people, if you run for president, uh, you do have to be, you do have to be somewhat of an egomaniac. But I think Rand probably thought that because he played ball at the establishment, uh, you know, he would, uh, you know, he'd be up there. He'd be up there in the polls. He would be a contender. And uh, what Rand Paul's candidacy has done is it's illustrated the fact that, to a very large degree, the liberty movement is still alive because he could not manipulate, deceive, coke, uh, cajole, or uh, convince the vast majority of Ron Paul supporters that he was worthy of their support. Case in point, case in point. Uh, Rand Paul's fundraising is dismal. Ron Paul raised more money. Paul has yeah, this, this organization that obviously he trusts, including Jesse Ben, who I said before, the best word I think of would be punk. And uh, <laughs> Ron Paul gets, he does get a fraction of the attention. If he shows up to speak somewhere, it's a non-event. You know, Ron Paul could show up at a university. It'd be five, you know, 5,000 people would show up. Uh, 
Rand Paul is generated nowhere near the excitement or the intensity or level of enthusiasm of Ron Paul. And and that's good. I mean, that really shows that the liberty movement's alive because people are thinking individuals. And that's that's part of what the liberty movement's about. It's about individuals inserting themselves into the political process at whatever level to try and make a difference. Uh Rand Rand has increasingly become, in my mind, more absurd and corrupt. During the first presidential debate, uh, he he attempted to isolate and demonize Donald Trump. Okay, and I think outright, I'd say Donald Trump has the best hair running. I think uh, Cruz had the best hair until Trump got in the race, but Trump hands down has the best hair. But Rand Paul attempted to demonize Trump by saying that yeah, there's only one person here on the stage that won't say won't give an an uncategorical uh uh endorsement for whoever's gonna win the nomination. So he's up there and I'm thinking, what you just did is you just said that your father was an idiot and you were basically yeah, then castigated your father. Because once again, this is real modern history. This isn't yeah, ancient history. Uh, Ron Paul once again refused to endorse McCain, and he didn't endorse Willard Mitt Romney. Yet you have Rand up there, you know, just totally prostituting himself. And again, I, sh- I should be careful when I say that. I wouldn't say he's prostituting himself because it's not like he's selling himself. I think this is who Rand is. This is who he is. I mean, he is a Republican politician. He's party. He's party over principle. His father was principle over party. And this is what you do when you know when you know the party dictates who you are and what you believe and how you act more than principle, this is what you get. So, so Rand Paul, you know, he attempts to demonize uh, Trump, and you know Trump's numbers just continue to increase because, as I said, as I said before in this program, Trump and and, and believe me, I I believe Trump is owned. Okay, I, I believe uh, Trump is not clean. I believe he's dirty of the money he's gotten. There's so many questions how long, not just the fact about you know, him hanging out with the Clintons and you know, being a Democrat a good part of his life, but uh, you you look at Trump's, how he's made some of his money. Uh, casino business is not known as a, clean, as a clean industry, let's face it. But in addition to that, this is a guy that's made money with eminent domain. In other words, the new view of eminent domain. Eminent domain is supposed to exist where if the government is, if there's a road, there's something, if there's something like a road that would benefit everyone, then the government could basically force someone to sell their private property. Eminent domain was redefined in a decision, I think around 10 years ago. I think it was Kello, Kello decision in Connecticut, where the the new you know, status view, the new anti-freedom view of eminent domain is that if a private, if a private corporation or business uh, can make more money with your land than they could take it. And then that's how Trump has made some of his money. And he still he still thinks that's great. So now I, I, I'm, I'm no fan of the Trumpster. But to show the desperation of Rand Paul, not only in the first debate try and ridicule and demonize Trump, uh, because Trump at that point, he, he wouldn't sign a pledge. He did later on saying he will endorse whoever gets the nomination, whoever's been pre-selected. Uh, I think it'll probably be Marco Rubio. We'll see. But Rand Paul just uh, has just continued to attack Trump. Uh, it, 
it, it it's amazing and really it really makes no sense like I said when after that first debate when when Trump said that again he just his numbers just continue to go up and up and up because Trump has has a couple of things uh really in his pocket number one he is you could say he is a true outsider and that he hasn't run for anything Rand is part of the Republican establishment now yeah he's a senator Okay, he's there. He's there in the district criminals. But the big thing with Rand, because you, you have another guy like Ben Carson, who's an outsider. But the big thing, rather, which, with the Trumpster is this, once again, as I've said before, he's taken a hardline view on illegal immigration because, and immigration in general. Uh, Rand was fond of saying, when he spoke, when Rand spoke at the National Hispanic Chamber of Commerce a couple of years ago, he said, he 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 made the ridiculous statement that other Republicans will say too that we need foreign work. It's just like okay, if you look at the real unemployment rate, they manipulate the federal government manipulates statistics. They manipulate inflation, the consumer price index. They do that by not including in consumer price index food and energy. Okay, so inflation numbers it's a lot lower than what it really is. It's a lot higher than what it really is because they underreport. When it comes to unemployment, the federal government basically says. If you are looking for a job and then you give up and you're you know, you're just you're homeless you're, you're you're sleeping on someone's couch, then magically you're not unemployed because you're not actively looking for a job. So when you factor in, you know, the people that are really unemployed, people that are giving up, people that are sleeping on couches or worse, it's it's twenty percent. We're at twenty twenty plus percent unemployment. This is a Great Depression level. Yet Rand Paul tells tells the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce that uh, we can. Uh, yeah, basically, we can. What we need, we need foreign workers. Okay, it's insane. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just, it's totally insane. It's totally insane. Let me see. At this late hour, is there a caller? Let's see. Hello, you are on the show. Are you there? I guess not. Uh, but Rand Paul. Uh, has gone into this mode where I think he felt entitled because you know he did what he was told to do. You know he endorses Mitch McConnell. Uh, he pushes Tom Tom Tolrod Tillis over the top of North Carolina. But I think he's he's a bitter man at this point because he's just he's gotten more desperate. Newsmax published an interview. Uh, they, they did an interview with Rand. They had a little piece. This was on. Uh, let's see. On the twenty, this was on October twenty second, and it was amazing to hear Rand. Okay, I'm going to play what Rand said about Trump. And again, if you dissect this, you know, for people that that are you know, you know deep into politics, you say, okay, Rand, Rand is going to, he's going to tell his message based upon a group. So he speaks to the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, and then it's okay for him to lie to say we need. We need more foreign workers, and we don't. And I think he really does believe that, incidentally. Like, I don't see him dealing with immigration, legal or illegal at all. But I'm going to play this piece. It's just it's less than two minutes. You can hear exactly what Rand said about Donald Trump. 
And this is why it's such a disaster and why Donald Trump would be probably the largest loser of any candidate ever in the history of the country if he were our nominee because he so polarized the debate that do you think women are going to nominate some guy who judges people by their appearance and calls you know, another uh, candidate ugly? Do you think they're going to nominate somebody who implies that most Hispanics are rapists and drug dealers and, oh, yeah, there might be a few of them that are not? You know, that kind of attitude is such and so polarizing that we get we get just swamped in a landslide. Ultimately, people are going to wake up, I think, and see the majority of Republicans will wake up and see, oh, my goodness, we can't nominate this. This would be a disaster for our party and for the country. Is he then, in your opinion, the single most dangerous thing that could happen not only to the Republican Party, but to America? He's the worst nominee that we could possibly think of. And uh, part of the reason is, is he's not really a Republican. I mean, he's recently become a Republican, but he's been a Democrat for most of his life. For 65 of his 69 years, he was a Democrat. For 65 of his 69 years, he supported liberal policies, bailing out the banks, the government stimulus where we borrow money and just throw it away. He also supports using eminent domain to take private property from individual property owners, small property owners, and give it to big corporations like his. He actually tried to take the house of a woman for a parking lot for one of his casinos. This is his mode of doing business, and he's jolly well with it. He's like, he loves it. Newsmax TV is everywhere, and everyone's talking about it. Get the latest breaking news at Okay, in that in that brief piece, uh, Rand Paul really, except for eminent domain, he he largely misrepresented and lied about Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> the the whole idea too, you know, Rand, Rand misrepresented his record. Trump always was an Democrat. He was an independent a number of those years, but you see his appeal to party, saying, well, yeah, he wasn't. Yeah, you know, he he really wasn't. He wasn't Republican. Well, if he was independent, then yeah, you know, that's a good thing. But he Rand again. There's just so many misrepresentations in less than two minutes. He talks about yeah, you know, Trump supporting the banker bailout. Uh, Rand Rand should know that there was a guy named Hank Paulson who was the Treasury Secretary under George W. Bush, and that George W. Bush supported the banker bailout. So this is part of the mind control that Rand. I guess thinks the people that watch that Newsmax interview are that ignorant that they're going to believe those things. Uh, Trump didn't imply that all illegal aliens are rapists or murderers. It's just it's it's just it's so insane. But I go back to where I said previously previously that the federal government has no numbers. Yeah, it's probably a good 30 million plus illegal aliens in the country. They have no hard numbers about the actual crimes the rapes, the murders, robberies are done by illegal aliens because that wouldn't help, you know, the two party system get the amnesty that they want, and that is the amnesty also that uh that Rand wants Rand wants. The, the most delusional thing Rand said is that and and you know, the announcer gave him every opportunity to back out of it, is Rand said Trump would be the worst candidate. Now, this is this is a moral at two two levels. Number one, Rand is the guy that tried to demonize Trump in the first debate when Trump said at that time he wouldn't necessarily support whoever got the nominee, whoever became nominee, whoever got the nomination. So now Rand has put himself in a position so that if Trump gets the nomination and Rand is allegedly a loyal Republican, now he just gave the Democrats some great ammo to play in commercials about how Rand Paul thinks about about Trump. 
secondly, and I think even more important, is when Ren basically said, yeah, no qualifications, he's the worst guy. Yeah, Rand should be drug tested. We're talking about Hillary Clinton, who should be in jail. I mean, the Clintons have a long string of dead bodies that have surrounded them from Arkansas on. Hillary Clinton, she should be in jail over Benghazi. They should be in jail over misappropriation of funds through the Clinton Foundations. Hillary Clinton, who Matt Rudge has outed and others as, as a lesbian. And yes, she's probably being blackmailed, as are a number of people in D.C., and then you look at the Republican alternative, you look at Jeb Bush. I mean, Jeb Bush, Jeb Bush openly embracing amnesty, openly embracing Common Core. Yet you look at the war on terror, uh, Jeb Bush is completely committed to you know, the war on terror, unending illegal wars, the police state, yet yet Trump would be worse. Now, this is, this is, Rand Paul's candidacy really illustrates the problem in American politics, and that's that for a lot of people, it's not everyone. Uh, they just get committed, they get emotionally attached, and they basically make, they support someone based upon personality and not based upon reality. So it's, it's all right with you know the small number of people that are under mind control that support Rand Paul. It's okay for him to lie about Trump. It, it's okay for him to lie about everything. It's okay for, for him to say, yeah, he, his filibuster against drones did something when it did nothing. It all doesn't matter because they're committed to him. They're not committed to principle. Like I said, I think the liberty movement is healthy because there's majority of the people I'd say that were going that were donating to Ron Paul. They were going to Ron Paul rallies. We don't we see none of that for Ron Paul. He's just another politician. He's he's largely irrelevant. Uh, and yeah, yes, Ron Paul will lose, and it'll be interesting when the people that are under mind control to see if they then just mindlessly support whoever gets the Republican nomination or not. And if they don't, then they really have to ask themselves that question, that if they have more discernment than Rand, why is it okay for Rand to lie then, and you know, if he's going to endorse Marco Rubio or whoever gets it. So I hope you enjoyed uh, tonight's show. I hope I gave you some things to think about uh it is good to be involved, understand how the system works. When you understand how the system works, when you interact with that system, uh, you can make a difference. Uh, don't let anyone lie to you. If, uh, if people do lie to you, then, uh, you have to hold them accountable, especially people that take an oath to uphold the Constitution from enemies foreign and domestic. Thank you for listening. Poggi will be back next week on the KIRP radio show. KIRP radio! Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. 
But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. 